Well, I didn't think about poetry really when I was uh, growing up, kind of before high school. I actually was uh, very involved with going to the theater and Broadway shows and uh, museum shows of you know modernist art, and also as a high school student with the anti-war movement and the kind of counterculture and be-ins and all, all the rest. Welcome to Omnia, the podcast on all things pen arts and sciences. In this episode, we talk to Charles Bernstein, inventive poet, writer of libretti, translator, archivist, and since 2003, a member of Penn's faculty. Bernstein is the Donald T. Regan Professor of English and Comparative Literature and the co-director of Penn Sound. He retired from the Department of English at the end of the spring 2019 semester. I graduated high school in 1968, so that was a banner year for all such things, folk music. Um, though I did, uh, you know, hear some poetry. Um, Allen Ginsberg uh, would appear on television, and I read his work. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. Uh, so I didn't really get involved with... Um, poetry or philosophy until I went to college 51 years ago. Writing has been a central thing in my life, and uh, just thinking about words and how they can be combined and recombined. Um, so I started to write some, some poetry when I was in college and to read some poetry. It wasn't really until just after I graduated, that's when I sort of developed the company that's kept me through life in poetry. Strange to remember a visit really not so long ago, which now seems finally past. Always it's a kind of obvious thing, I guess, amazed by that cycle, that first you anticipate a thing and it seems far off. The distance has a weight you can feel hanging on you. And then it's there, that point, whatever, which now, while it's happening, seems to be constantly slipping away, like the sand through your fingers in an old movie, until you can only look back on it, and yet you're still there, staring at your thoughts in the window of the fire you find yourself before. Like-minded groups of poets and artists are integral to post-war American poetry. Often, these groups center around a sense of place. Allen Ginsberg and the Beat Poets grew out of San Francisco's countercultural scene. The Black Mountain Poets practiced what they called projective verse and were associated with Black Mountain College in North Carolina, while the New York School was a group of experimental poets and painters who lived and worked in Manhattan. Bernstein reminds us that different schools of poets have different and even competing values and priorities. He also says that poetic communities do not need to be tied to a shared place. Poetry is so many different things historically and uh, even in the present. Uh, it, it's very many competing things. People sometimes think uh, that poetry is a singular thing that's good or bad, but actually poetry is more like politics. There are competing approaches to it and competing ways of, of writing that are not really reconcilable and in my mind shouldn't, shouldn't be. Me and my friends were involved in the anti-war movement. We understood the necessity of organizing and in a way we, we projected 
those engagements to poetry. So um, people say words like community, which is okay. Network is kind of a little too bureaucratic. Uh, but community often implies people who know each other, you know, in a prior way or somehow are, are neighbors. And I think what I've always been interested in is the, the kind of active curating and putting things together and putting people together who don't necessarily know each other. But um, uh, certainly organizing and creating connections has been a fundamental thing I have done, you know, my whole life as a poet. Bernstein's longtime collaborators include poets Jerome Rothenberg, Bruce Andrews, Steve McCaffrey, and Lynn Haginian, as well as artists Amy Silman and Susan B. In the 70s, a correspondence between these artists and writers led to a magazine and poetry movement bound by a shared interest in experimenting with sound and language. I'm in Vancouver and with, with Susan in the rainforest in uh, Ruskin, it was called, named after John Ruskin. It was a utopian community of loggers midway between Haney and Mission. So, you know, pretty far out from, you know, in, in the rainforest for Manhattan kids. It was very extreme. You know, it was my one time that I used a chainsaw. It rained all the time, which I, I rather enjoyed cutting down the trees with the chainsaw and, and uh, heating with the, the logs and so on. Because um, I had never lived in the country, so I was wrote to to Rothenberg, and he, and and he uh, put me in touch with Silliman, and Silliman mentioned uh, Bruce Andrews and um, Lynn Hegenian and people that that he was in touch with, who I wrote to. So that sort of formed the basis of what we did as a language magazine. Now that's L equals there equals between the letters of language. But the, that set of correspondence uh, with Steve McCaffrey, too, at that time, who was in Toronto, you could see in the very long letters uh, that we were writing to one another the sort of basis of what we tried to do in establishing Language Magazine, which started in 1978. The magazine published 13 issues between 1978 and 1981. Now, L equals poets are essential to the study of postmodern American poetry, but the magazine began as a more modest endeavor. We uh, typed on our selectric typewriters and uh, um, had to spray, put spray on it to, to, to fix the, it was a self-correcting selectric so the ink would smudge, uh, although you could easily make corrections on it. And then uh, Susan B. Uh, designed it and put it into these booklets, which uh, Really, initially, we sold it. 1978, we announced the magazine that we would do six issues, one every other month, for $4, uh, and uh, which I handled, came to my, my address on uh, uh, Amsterdam Avenue and 82nd Street. And we had about 200 subscribers that year. From the start of the L Equals movement, Bernstein recorded poetry readings. His early career involved audio work, what he calls splices, collages, and overlays. And as a writer of operas, he is tuned into the experience of hearing words rather than reading them. Since 2003, preserving, cataloging, and distributing audio recordings of poetry have been important parts of his work. That project is called Penn Sound, a collaborative effort with Al Phil Reese, Kelly Family Professor of English and Director of Kelly Writers House. 
Uh, Penn Sound, Al Filries and I started when I came to, to Penn in 2003. He had been doing a lot of recording right here at the Kelly Writers House, and so I had a lot of DAT tapes, and I had an enormous amount of cassette tapes. So we came up with the idea of developing uh, an archive for audio recordings of poetry, which there wasn't really any at that time. And quite apart from just our own collections, which we did digitize, hundreds of tapes, we collected and preserved enormous numbers of other people's collections and historical recordings of going back to the beginning of sound recordings. So we have the complete William Carlos Williams and the actually early recordings of Frost that um, were not otherwise available that we've digitized and made available. And... Uh, uh, a pound and Stein among the modernists, many and plus huge numbers of contemporary uh, poets. The way a crow shook down on me, the dust of snow from a hemlock tree has given my heart a change of mood and saved some part of a day I had rude. Penn Sound is one legacy of Bernstein's career. Another is his teaching. As a professor in the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, or CPCW, he encouraged students to look at poetry differently than they had before. I remember early on when I was actually teaching in the 3808, the CPCW space that we created, um, room 111, we were looking at Mallarmé's uh, Un Coup de Day. And Mallarmé's Un Coup de Day is uh, absolutely inaugural work for many of us in uh, modernists and radical poetics and it has a lot of blank space on the page and it's sort of it's fragmented and the page sizes are very very big and the student looks at me and he says so you're saying it's like art and I said yes that, that, that's right I, I've always loved that so you're saying it's like art because there's a kind of certain dawning of Realizing, yes, poetry is, uh, is art. In Bernstein's classes, students were often asked a simple question about a poem. Did you like it? He says that when students feel authorized to make aesthetic judgments, they can grapple with poems in deeper ways. So a lot of my undergraduate teaching is really to uh, pull students into an aesthetic experience based on their intuition, their sensibility, and hearing different things. So fundamental to that is also seeing what you like or don't like. So I always say that, you know, you're going to go across the street to the food mall and you're going to say the hamburger here is better than the hamburger, you know, in, in, in downtown. Or you're going to say go to this particular stall because it's going to have the best salad or whatever it is, you know, I have no problem making aesthetic judgments. So when it comes to poetry, you somehow say, oh, I, I can't say, who am I to say? But it doesn't matter. What you're saying doesn't mean that the poem is injured or that you're, that you're right or wrong. It has to do with the way you interact, that you actually just, that you could care as much about a poem as you do about your choice of a hamburger is, is fundamental because if you don't react that way, you, you can't experience what it is. And that includes disliking something, just like you might dislike food that somebody else likes. And also includes the fact that for many great poems, some people in a group are going to hate them and some people are going to like them. Just like beat poets and L equals poets might write different kinds of poetry, different readers will respond to different poems. And when you consider the different occasions of a poem, one printed in a book, 
one delivered at a live performance, or one listened to on an archive like Penn Sound, even a single poem might elicit different responses depending on the format. Poetry is very different than newspaper articles or some, some kinds of prose in that it really, not all poetry, but the kind of poetry I want really does emphasize the echoing and the sound and the bounce and the rhythms. And, uh, you know, that's, oh, oh, you know, intensified for me oh, over the years. A poem is a plural event, and this is another thing that I think very much um, grates against people who have a much more traditional alphabetic text-oriented, idealized idea of the poem. So the idea that uh, the audio recording of a poem is as significant as the printed version that destabilizes the idea of what the original and final version is discomforts a lot of people, just in the way that the poetry that I'm involved in in my approach to poetics in general destabilizes certain ideas of, of the poem as a kind of idealized lyric voice. I think that when you have this huge archive, it displaces the ability to think of print culture as being primary. It reminds one that, of course, print culture is itself a, a relatively recent technology as far as uh, poetry goes. I mean, we're talking about um, you know, 600, 700 years of print culture and really only 100 years or 150 years of mass literacy. So it, it brings us back in a way to the history of what poetry is and the relation of sound and rhythm and uh, I think that for me and for many uh, other poets, we think of our performances of our work as just as significant as, as the books. Now, I say that I actually myself do think of my books as primary just because I come up with book culture and books are very important to me. But, uh, but I do a lot of readings and I perform the works in different ways. And a lot of people hear poetry just through uh, readings. Penn Sound's robust collection is an act of preservation. The archive means that readings can be revisited, a relatively new phenomenon that Bernstein doesn't take lightly. Another thing about recording that's interesting in terms of poetry is that you can retrieve it so that it, poetry uh, sound recording allows you to go back and repeat. It's more like writing in that sense. If I speak to you without recording in the moment, it can't be retrieved. The thing about writing is that you can go back and retrieve it and hear it again. And uh, also poetry sound recording, obviously people are more enamored of, of, of music recordings, uh, which have been so important. But the solo voice is still a remarkable thing. The recording of the solo voice by Edison in the 19th century was the first um, person to do that, where you actually have a human voice without seeing the body and the presence of it. And that's a little bit like writing, too. And it's uh, people talk about the ghostly presence, hearing the dead. You can't hear the dead because the dead continue to speak. But there's something very powerful about hearing a voice without a body. We take it for granted, but this is not something that was possible more than 150 years ago or even a little bit less. And uh, it creates a whole other dimension to what verbal art would be, the voice without the body. Forever. Give me a hammer. Give me a bell. Listen to the chime. Listen to its spell. Give me an axe. Give me a tree. Watch logs catch fire by degree. Bleed a thought till it tells secrets of elation. 
hiding in a shell. Find your way. Make it swell. Give what you got, not what sells. Before you go, sing me a song. Time's almost over. Days been long. No harder road ever will you see than the road you're on. Far from me. Give me an axe. Give me a tree. Watch logs catch fire by degree. Bleed a thought till it spills. Secrets of regret hiding in a spell. Who knows if we'll meet again. Don't know where. Can't say when. Maybe never. Maybe in hell. Fare thee well. Fare thee well. Give me a hammer. Give me a bell. Listen to the chime. Listen to it dwell. Find your way. Make it sell. Give all you got till it swells. No harder road ever did I see than the one you're on so far from me. Do me a favor, sing me a song. Time's almost over, days been long. I don't know whether we'll meet again, maybe we will, somewhere in hell. I can't say how, and I don't know when. So fare thee well. Fare thee well. That was Charles Bernstein reading Fare Thee Well. The poem appeared in his award-winning 2018 collection, Near Miss. This has been a presentation of Penn Arts and Sciences. To listen to previous episodes of the Omnia podcast, visit our website, or subscribe to the Omnia podcast by Penn Arts and Sciences on iTunes. Thank you.